This is Castle Stories, a podcast from Newcastle Castle about the rich history of the Northeast. Hello and welcome to this episode of Castle Stories. I'm your host, David Silk. In last week's episode, we examined the myth that most people never travelled in the medieval period, and were found that, contrary to this belief, people travelled for all sorts of reasons. For work, serving in war, and on pilgrimage to sites all over Christendom and the wider world. In this episode, we're going to take a delve a little bit deeper into this, and we're going to find out what it was actually like to go on a journey in medieval times. The first thing to mention is that it's not something you would do on a whim. Travel could be difficult and dangerous, and it took plenty of planning. First off, there were no maps. Well, that's not quite true, actually. There were maps, but there were no useful maps. Maps were something made by scholars, and they reflected more of the ideas of the relation between different parts of the world. They weren't drawn to scale, and they were never actually intended to be used by travellers. They were more likely to be found in a book or manuscript about distant lands than they were in the hands of a traveller. Instead of a map, if you wanted to plan a journey, you would need an itinerary. Itineraries were sometimes drawn out, rather like a really long straight map, but in essence all an itinerary is, is a list of places on the way to your destination. Let's say you were leaving Newcastle to go on pilgrimage to Canterbury. The first place on your itinerary might well be Durham. So when you left Newcastle, you would go south over the bridge into Gateshead and you would ask the way to Durham. Somebody would point out the road for you and when you were in Durham, you would stay over and ask the way to your next destination. And so on and so on until you got to Canterbury. With any luck, you might be travelling with someone who actually had some experience of parts of your route at least, or you might be able to fall in with a group of locals on their way to market or something like that. Certainly, you would want to travel in a group. While the medieval world was not quite as lawless as it's sometimes portrayed, there were outlaws on the road who preyed on travellers. We might actually do a future episode on medieval outlaws. They're quite fascinating figures in their own right. There were also wild animals like wolves and boars in some part of the country so it would probably be a good idea to go armed. A stout staff would be pretty ubiquitous among anyone travelling on foot. Everyone in the medieval period carried a dagger or a knife. But actually, a sword could be bought for as little as six pence in medieval England, and they crop up loads in records, which implies that they were quite commonly carried for self-defence. A six-pence sword probably wouldn't be a very good sword, by the way, but for self-defence you don't really need it to be. All you need is something that you can wave around in somebody's face and make yourself look nice and threatening. Now, how did you actually get around? Rivers were used for travel, especially for transporting heavy goods, but the main way of travelling through medieval England was by road. Either on foot, on horseback, or in a cart. Even royalty actually rode on horseback, though by the late medieval period there were vehicles resembling carriages that carried noble ladies in great comfort. But there was absolutely nothing resembling anything like the coach service of the 18th or 19th centuries. Even kings rode their own horses. The core of the road network was the old Roman roads, although new roads were built throughout the period to connect new towns and villages that weren't built on old Roman sites. In theory, local lords, towns and communities were responsible for the repair and upkeep of royal roads and bridges. This included some measures to protect travellers from robbers. For example, in 1285, Edward I passed a law that undergrowth had to be cleared from either side of the roads for 200 feet, which is quite a distance. This was intended to strip away the cover on either side of the road that outlaws could jump out from. This was all in theory, of course. Roads were actually often in very poor repair, with local lords neglecting maintenance whenever they could, after all it was expensive, and travellers could never be quite sure of the condition that they would find roads or bridges in. This was another reason that up-to-date local knowledge was often much more useful than a map ever could have been. 
Also, because road building was not funded by any central government, like the Roman road network had been, they were usually not professionally built or paved at all. French records from the end of the 14th century talk about planks or gravel being used to try and make what were essentially mud tracks a little bit easier for travellers to navigate. A bit like a modern festival site, really. Given all of this, how much distance could you reasonably be expected to cover in a day, then? Well, that really depends on whether you had a decent horse and what the roads were like. But on foot, 15 to 20 miles a day would not be unreasonable. 20 to 25 miles a day if you had a horse, and probably only 12 or so miles a day with a cart. However, messengers and royalty in emergencies could cover incredible distances when they were pushed. Richard II of England once travelled 70 miles in a single day, and royal messengers often travelled at 40 or 50 miles a day. The key to this was having access not just to a horse, but to changes of horses. By having staging posts where you could get a fresh horse, you would be able to gallop your horse a short distance before swapping out your exhausted steed for a nice new one. Now, his journey postdates the medieval period, but Sir Robert Carey, one of Queen Elizabeth I's courtiers, rode from Richmond Palace near London to Edinburgh in just over three days when Queen Elizabeth I died to tell James VI of Scotland that he was now also James I of England. Carey, of course, was riding hard without much rest, but for most travellers on a slightly more leisurely journey, you would need plenty of places to stop and rest. The medieval world had two equivalents to our hotels and bed and breakfasts. The first one was the inn. Nowadays, the word inn is almost synonymous with a pub, but taverns and alehouses, which were the places mainly for boozing, were distinct from inns in the medieval period. Inns were more about places to stay than they were just about the drink. Inns were big business too. Innkeepers were often the richest and most prominent members of their community in a town or village. And most inns were very large. They boasted a stables, a hall, a kitchen, storage spaces, accommodation for the innkeeper and his family, as well as accommodation for travellers. Sometimes this could be private rooms, but more often it was actually a communal sleeping area, rather like a modern hostel. This, of course, allowed plenty of opportunity for people to chat with their fellow travellers and swap news of what was going on in the country at large and get an idea of what the roads were like on the next leg of their journey. You might guess from this that the clientele of Nin was usually relatively wealthy. And you'd be right. Innkeepers themselves were often wealthy and served as justices of the peace or in other locally important roles. And their guests were usually rich too. They were merchants, gentry, officials and other people from the wealthier end of society. By the 1300s, though, more and more inns seem to have been set up to cater to pilgrims on their travels as well. Famously, Chaucer starts the Canterbury Tales with all of the pilgrims meeting in an inn called the Tabard in Southwark outside London. And Newcastle had a pilgrim's inn on Pilgrim Street, which was for people heading up to Jesmond. One myth that I found while researching this podcast, which I thought was interesting, was the idea that bouncers originated in medieval inns, and that they got their name because they would check the authenticity of coins carried by travellers by bouncing them off a wet piece of wood. Now, I'm not even going to pretend to know how that would work, um, but it's simply not true. That is not a real thing about the Middle Ages. The first recorded use of the word bouncer is in America, and it's in the 1800s. Very simply, bouncers were the people that bounced you out of the place if you misbehaved. It has absolutely nothing to do with stotting coins off a wet piece of wood. Um, in fact, as far as I know, medieval inns usually weren't guarded. They didn't have bouncers of any kind. The other place you might find yourself staying, if you were on the road, was at a monastery. There were lots of monasteries in England in the Middle Ages, and lots of them had buildings called hospitals. Now, we all know what a hospital is, don't we? It's somewhere set up to provide for the care of the sick and infirm. Now, that was true in the Middle Ages as well, 
But it wasn't their only, or even necessarily their main purpose. They were actually set up originally to provide hospitality for travellers. That's where the name hospital comes from. These could be quite comfortable places, even if they were a little bit austere, and you would be looked after and well-fed by the monks. Although, travellers with coin would be expected to make a donation for the upkeep of the facilities, so that people who couldn't afford it could also be cared for. Your other option, if you found yourself without an inn or a monastery anywhere nearby, was to try to bed down in somebody's house or barn. This seems to actually have been really common. Hospitality was considered a Christian duty at the time, so travellers could often find someone to stay with, and people may even be keen to have travellers coming to stay with them, because they could bring exciting news from other parts of the kingdom, or even from overseas. You've got to think, in a world where people often don't see people for long periods of time, having visitors come to your village would be quite an exciting experience. Now, One interesting question that I wasn't able to answer while researching this podcast is how you would let someone that you were travelling to visit know that you were coming. Now, people did write letters in the Middle Ages, but it was relatively rare. Most people were illiterate. You would need a scribe to write the letter for you, a messenger to carry the letter to wherever it was going, and then the person at the other end would probably need a scribe to read the letter to them as well. This would be very difficult, really, for non-nobles, so it might just have been a case of turning up and hoping for the best. On the other hand, I guess in a world without much effective long-distance communication, where it's hard to keep in touch with your friends, it would have been nice to have a surprise visit, as long as you really do like them, of course. Nobles, naturally, having access to all the best things, had access to messengers that they could dispatch to let people know that they were on their way, and nobles often travelled with huge retinues of servants and other hangers-on. Getting a message like that must have been a message that many people dreaded. When the king came to visit his lords, or when a lord came to visit his knights, they were expected to put up not just the family, but the whole household. In the case of the royal household, that could be as many as 400 people that you would have to find living quarters for. Now, most of what we've discussed in this episode really only covers relatively local travel. I'm talking about journeys taken within England, Scotland, and parts of France as well. People would cross over the seas too. But the medieval world is replete with examples of amazingly far-travelled people, explorers like uh, Marco Polo, very famously, but also Ibn Battuta, a Moroccan Muslim traveller, covered over 72,000 miles between 1325 and 1354, It's an incredible achievement. He is definitely someone worthy of an entire episode of his own in the future. But next week, moving away from travel and the broad world of the roads of medieval England, we're going to zoom in on the little villages that dotted the medieval landscape. And we're going to take a look at the lives of medieval peasants, about whom there are a great many myths. Were they really the dung-covered simpletons of modern films? And if not, what were the lives of peasants really like? Well, if you want to find out, you'll have to give us a listen next week. Castle Stories is a Newcastle Castle production. This week's host was David Silk. You can find out more about Castle Stories and about Newcastle Castle at newcastlecastle.co.uk.